If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, we are in, as you know, a study of the book of Ephesians, and we have arrived at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 and following. And of course, this is a very, very practical section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where he talks about their maturity in the body. They're attaining to the unity of the faith, their knowledge of the Son of God, maturing to a full-grown man, using that idea of a man being fully grown just as the body of Christ is working toward that full-grown stature, no longer children tossed to and fro by winds and waves of trickery and doctrine, growing up into that full maturity as the body of Christ continues to to flourish and to exert itself in the world, each part exerting itself with the proper working so that each individual person is contributing to the to the full growth, the spiritual maturation of the body. And then Paul in chapter four, verse seventeen, begins to talk about sort of the hows and wise of doing that, and we are certainly going to get into verses 17 to 21 specifically tonight, and then next Lord's Day evening we'll occupy ourselves with verses 22, 3, and 4, and I sectioned it off this way because if you'll notice in verses 22, 3, and 4, Paul uses what is unique to him, by the way, Uh, the metaphor of putting off old clothes and putting on new clothes. And he uses that illustration to show us that the Christian life is all about wearing new clothes, being a new person, being created new in Christ, and putting off all of the things that have characterized us in the old life, just as though you were taking off your jacket, you were taking off your clothes, the old clothes, and putting them away from you permanently and putting on a new set of clothes, just like putting on Christ. In fact, Paul even uses that particular phrase, putting on Christ uh, in Romans and in Galatians. And so he does so here as well, putting off certain things and putting on certain things as though those old clothes don't fit you anymore and the new clothes are the things that do fit because of who you are now in Christ. And if you indeed tried to put on your new clothes over the old garments, they wouldn't fit. They simply wouldn't do you're a new person in Christ, and the old, old clothes have to come off. They have to be ridded from you so that you are able to put on the new garments of your faith in Jesus Christ. I was reading recently from a, a little biography, uh, and if you would indulge me a bit for a rather uh, lengthy uh, reading, I want to read for you something that piqued my interest because it identified with me at least the very thing that Paul is talking about here. You can't say that you're a Christian and continue as though you are a new person in Christ, a new creation, and yet try to wear the old clothes of your former manner of living. 
And this is a sketch of a biography that I think really illustrates this. Listen to the following biography of one man. As he sipped his ginger ale and scanned the room for friends, he might have missed on his way in Jimmy Durante, Sammy Davis Jr., and Humphrey Bogart made their way over to share a few laughs. Others, their faces not so readily recognizable, approached the table with a whispered question or pressed a folded note into a bodyguard's hand. The Hollywood of the late 1940s was a tinsel town at the height of its glamour. Movies like Twelve O'Clock High, Sunset Boulevard, and All About Eve were rolling out of its mammoth production studios. Film stars were larger than life, their furs, jewels, and limousines, the props for roles they played to the hilt, even when they left the set. Gossip columns linked starlets and mobsters, movie moguls and politicians' daughters. Celebrities measured their status by the number of morning headlines devoted to their exploits the night before. And within this gilded world ruled a short figure with a receding hairline and an abrupt New York accent. An unlikely king, he could cause a sensation even at the celebrity-packed starlight room. Meyer Harris Cohen, known to his friends and enemies alike as Mickey, mobster and number one bad boy of Los Angeles, had invented his own role in life and written the script to please himself. Born poor in New York City, he had once been a New Jersey punk and strong-arm man. Later he moved to the West Coast and became a self-styled gangster in the tradition of Al Capone, whose work he greatly admired. Cohen was tough to the core, with an immense ego and an innate sense of self-preservation. Contracts were repeatedly put out on his life. His home was bombed his car machine-gunned. By 1949, Cohen was top man in the Los Angeles underworld, handling half a million dollars every day from his gambling casinos, floating crap games, private gambling clubs, legalized poker games, and the biggest non-syndicate bookie business west of Chicago. He had a luxurious home, a glamorous wife, and entertained lavishly for his friends. Nothing happened in that glittering town without his say-so, for Cohen's charisma was power, not glamour. Yet he had the charm of a kid brother who wanted nothing so much as to be liked. Late one night in that same year, 1949, Cohen received a phone call from one of his employees, a man named Jim Voss. Voss was an electronics wizard, one of the original wiretappers. He had first worked for the police in criminal investigations, then for Hollywood stars seeking evidence in divorce proceedings, and finally for Cohen and other world figures, underworld figures. Even so valued an employee as Voss wouldn't have dared call Cohen that late at night unless what he had on his mind was urgent. The gangster invited him and his wife, Alice, to come to his home in Brentwood immediately. In Cohen's living room, Jim Voss explained that he had attended something called a Billy Graham crusade in downtown L.A. and had become a Christian. Mickey was Jewish and considered all Gentiles Christians. He said he didn't understand what Voss was talking about. 
Jim explained that becoming a Christian involved a personal commitment to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Mickey paused, then then smiled uh, indulgently. That's good to hear, Jim. As far as I'm concerned, this little Jew's in your corner, 100%. All I'd like you to promise me is that I don't want to ever hear you turn back. Well, I'm giving up everything, Voss said. Mickey didn't know what everything meant. Jim Voss's renunciation of his criminal life forced him to come up against, or as they would say, double-cross other underworld figures not as understanding as Mickey. For example, Voss was due to fly to St. Louis that week for a piece of work that was to expand a horse-racing betting scam that had already netted bushels of gambling money for Jim and several underworld partners. When Jim called his St. Louis associates, told him about his conversion and that he wasn't coming, they assured him they would be coming for him. One day, as expected, the muscle men came. They told Voss it was time to settle the score and that they'd expected him to come quietly. Jim knew that they'd been ordered either to cripple him for life or kill him. He stood on his porch steps and for 45 minutes told them what had happened to him, how Jesus Christ had transformed his life. At the end of his account, the hoods turned and walked away. They never came back. Mickey asked Voss if he would introduce him to that guy who's converting all those famous folks. Through a series of circumstances, Mickey did meet Billy Graham. Intrigued, the gangster agreed to hear the evangelist preach at a private meeting of a group of Hollywood people that included Stuart and Susie Hamblin, as well as Western stars Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. Fifty or sixty people crowded together on chairs in the floor to hear Billy Graham. After the tall young preacher finished his gospel message, J. Edwin Orr, another evangelist, got up to give an invitation. He also invited people who were simply interested in learning more about Christianity to raise their hands. He wanted to give them copies of the Gospel of John. Jim Voss's conversion led him to make restitution for the crimes he'd committed. He had stolen $15,000 worth of electronic equipment from the telephone company and a local radio station. He sold his house and automobile in order to pay back the money. When a notice of his actions appeared in the paper, he received a call from Cohen. How are you going to get around without no car, Jim? Mickey asked. Well, the buses and streetcars are all running. Sure, but look it, let me loan you a car. Thanks, Mickey, but no. Why not, his former boss asked. I'm working for a new boss now, Mickey. There are new rules. I can't take something that somebody got through crime. But what you going to do? You're in a spot. I'm just trying to help you out as a friend. Voss told Mickey not to worry about him, that God could supply all his needs. Eventually, Mickey Cohen was indicted for tax evasion. While the criminal authorities couldn't put Mickey away, the IRS did a thorough job of proving he had spent far more than he had reported his income. In 1951, Cohen was convicted and sentenced to five years in jail. While in prison, however, Mickey continued to operate, making sure through underworld connections. When Mickey came out of prison in October of 1955, he no longer had his power in L.A., not the muscle to regain it. 
Jim Voss called Mickey shortly after his release and offered his help, including the loan of a car. Recalling Voss's reply to the same offer a few years earlier, Mickey shot back, The buses and the streetcars are still running, aren't they? But Mickey accepted the loan. Voss also stocked Mickey's apartment with groceries and let him have the run of the office where Voss had now carried on a ministry to young people. Mickey seemed to be changing. At least he paid more attention to those who truly had his welfare at heart. Also, he had been oddly charitable, raising money for the Ergen Freedom Fighters in Israel, donating funds to hospitals, sending out Thanksgiving baskets. Seeing this new current within Mickey, and after spending hours with him, another evangelist, Bill Jones, urged him to commit his life to Christ. He explained God's plan of salvation, beginning by telling Mickey that God loved him and had a wonderful plan for his life. Mickey thought that was great. Then Jones told him that he was sinful, like all mankind, and separated from God. Mickey had trouble with that one. For one thing, he was a Jew, and a Jew was one of God's chosen people. How could he be separated from the God of the Jews? Bill Jones tried to lead him in the penitence prayer. If you'll repeat after me, you can know right here and now that you will be reborn as a son of God. You will live in heaven forever. You've seen the high life, Mickey, but none of us have seen anything like heaven. So will you pray with me? To Bill's surprise and delight, Mickey repeated the prayer. Had Mickey Cohen, famous Hollywood gangster, really become a Christian? As the word spread through the Christian community, there was jubilant response. What a trophy! In a day when the evangelical church was seldom in the news, this was headline stuff. He called Jim Voss and discussed the possibility of flying Mickey to New York to meet with Billy Graham, who was soon to begin a crusade in Madison Square Garden. Voss agreed to help pay for Mickey's expenses in New York. Graham met with him and in a marathon session tried to explain the significance of what Mickey had done in his prayer with Bill Jones. Though Mickey was amiable, Graham sensed a wall of inner resistance that could not be scaled. Nevertheless, Mickey showed up two days later at the Graham crusade in the garden, Madison Square Garden, along with several bodyguards and a flock of reporters. Speculation was rife. Would Cohen go forward making public his commitment? You and I deserve hell, thundered Billy Graham. You and I deserve to spend eternity separated from God. Oh yes, the scriptures teach that you are a sinner, and so am I. You may think you are a good and upright person, and that you've done nothing worthy of damnation. You may say, I am honest in my business dealings. I love my kids. I give to the united way. But there's no middle ground between heaven and hell. You are either on the road to one or the other. Tonight you have to make your choice. Every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl, you have, you will have to make your choice between pleasure and Christ, amusements and Christ, popularity in Christ, money in Christ. Whatever is keeping you from the kingdom of God, you will have to make a choice tonight. And if you refuse to make the choice, that very act means you have already made it. After he returned to Los Angeles, Mickey dropped Bill Jones and contacted Jim Voss less frequently. He began hanging around with his underworld cronies again. 
This perplexed and upset the evangelist Jones, who went to Mickey and told him that as a new Christian, he ought to be putting as much mileage between himself and his mob connections as possible. Jones, Mickey replied, You never told me that I had to give up my career. You never told me that I had to give up my friends. There are Christian movie stars, Christian athletes, Christian businessmen. So what's the matter with being a Christian gangster? If I have to give up all that, if that's Christianity, count me out. Mickey Cohen quietly lived out his last years at his suburban Los Angeles home, dying of cancer on July 29, 1976. Mickey was alone when he stepped from this world. His wife had divorced him years earlier. There were no clamoring crowds of reporters, no dancing girls, no bodyguards. The over-publicized accounts of Mickey's exploits had faded from memory. Even his public flirtation with Christianity became a minor story buried in old newspaper microfilm. Why Mickey was first drawn to Christianity, we will probably never know. Maybe he saw it as a way to gain respectability he could never earn on his own. Maybe he saw a glint of hope and real power. Whatever it was, the image of Jesus knocking at the door was as compelling to him as it had been to millions through the centuries. And he began to open that door only to discover that doing so involved a choice. He must surrender himself or close the door. When he finally understood what was demanded of him, what repentance meant, he closed the door. Mickey Cohen could not repent. Though Cohen's life reads like a movie script, the crucial point of this dramatic story is that at heart, each one of us is exactly like Mickey Cohen, sinful and struggling with repentance. Granted, he was flamboyant and neurotic, a gangland figure, guilty of every crime in the book. Granted, his guilt made the headlines, his sins were public knowledge. But in voicing his comical, outrageous, poignant question, what's the matter with being a Christian gangster? Cohen was echoing the millions of professing Christians who, though unwilling to admit it, through their very lives, pose the same question. Not about being Christian gangsters, but about being Christianized versions of whatever they already are and are determined to remain. And like Mickey, we cannot love God, cannot obey Him, and remain what we are. We must repent. And when I read that account years ago and thought about that for the message tonight, I thought about Ephesians chapter 4. I thought about the fact that Mickey Cohen was trying to live with what he wanted as new clothes without ever taking the old clothes off. And Paul deals with this in this passage. Look at Ephesians chapter 4 with me, and you follow along as I read. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk 
as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old man, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new man created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Even though we'll only be able to cover verses 17 through verse 21 tonight, I want to give you three outline points which I think give us the sense of our understanding of this passage. And here's the first one. Number one, Paul is telling the Ephesian believers... Don't think like non-Christians think. Don't think like non-Christian men and women think. Verses 17 and 18. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Now, this is, this is what Paul has already told them in chapter 2. Look over at chapter 2 for a moment. He tells these Christians, and they are Christians, they've come to Christ They've become new in Christ. They have repented of their sins, unlike Mickey Cohen. But he wants to remind them of the life that they used to live. And he says in chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Notice, they don't walk that way anymore, but they did once walk that day, uh, walk that way, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He says in verse 3, Among whom we all not just the Gentile believers in Ephesus, but every one of us, Jew and Gentile, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Yes, this is, this is an amazing Pauline declaration, a biography, as it were. He's describing Mickey Cohen. He's describing every person who's ever lived on the face of this earth. They are dead in trespasses and sins. They're following the course of this world. They're following the prince of the power of of the air. 
They are a part of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And we've all lived in the passions of our flesh. We've all carried out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were all children of wrath by nature like the rest of mankind. And now he even says, let me pile on. Let me tell you further. And notice how he begins in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. Maybe that phrase testify in the Lord is not strong enough in the English. What he's saying is, now I'm going to tell you something. I'm writing an epistle for you to read. And this I say, and I insist in the Lord that you do this. I am imploring you strong language. I want to tell you something, just like I told you in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Now I'm telling you here in chapter 4, verse 17, I am pleading with you. I'm insisting with the full weight of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the Lord who's referenced there, the Lord Jesus. I say and insist in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk just like Mickey Cohen. Mickey, you you can't continue to assume that you can live as a Christian gangster. You, You can't assume that you can claim Christ and believe you love Christ and honor Christ and obey Christ and follow Christ if you are still walking as the pagans walk. You can't do that. I insist that you no longer walk as you once walked. Well, how were they walking? I mean, before Christ, before they knew Christ, how were they walking? Notice what he says, in the futility of their minds. Do you see that in verse 17? Translated here, futility. And you know, it's translated in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, especially in the book of Ecclesiastes, as vanity. In the vanity of your minds. The idea is there is meaninglessness in the Gentile mind, the pagan mind, the non-Christian mind. They don't know the Lord. They don't love the Lord. They don't care about the Lord. They don't obey the Lord. And the reason why, Paul says, is because they have vanity or meaninglessness in their minds. He even tells the Romans essentially the same thing. Look over at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. He uses actually almost the very same language. Romans chapter 1. You know this uh, particular section beginning in verse 18. Look at what he says in verse 21. Romans 1 21. For although they knew God, uh, speaking of course of those who are, who are Every one of us, born, created by God, being raised up in this world and beginning to see things as adults as we ought to see, for although they knew God, it's very evident that everybody knows God. How do you know that? Verse 20, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived by people ever since, Paul says, the creation of the world in the things that have been made. You look out at creation and you can say, as Paul says here, there is nobody who has an excuse to deny the reality that a supreme being, a God of some kind, has created this universe. He's created this world. 
so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And notice this, for they became futile in their thinking. The futility of the mind of non-Christians. You see it. You live in the same world I live in. You know what they're saying. You look at television last week in this, or you follow something on the internet, and you find that there are those who are involved in Planned Parenthood, and they're selling baby body parts so that someone can buy a brand new car, an expensive vehicle, just because their lusts are out of control. That's a classic example just this week of the futility of the mind of the unbeliever. And he also says in the first part of verse 18, does Paul here in Ephesians 4, they are darkened in their understanding. Darkened in their thinking. That word for understanding is dianoia, which is used, by the way, interchangeably with cardia, heart. It it just refers to the sort of the mission control center of a person. Their, Their mind uh, their their conscience, uh, their their rational apparatus, their their thinking, their understanding, and Paul says that thinking is dark, darkened understanding. It means mental estrangement from God. And by the way, the language here means it's a perpetual state of being. That's who non Christians are. They have this futile mind working. And it doesn't say they're mentally impaired. Uh, It doesn't say that they're coming up short on the uh, IQ. It it doesn't mean any of that. I mean, there are non-Christians who are incredibly intelligent, right? They have PhDs. They they walk around. They, They try to solve some of the world's greatest problems. And all the while, in doing what they presuppose is right and honorable and best, inside There is nothing but the futility of their minds and their darkened understanding. They have a darkened mind, and Christians, the Bible says, even here in Ephesians, they have an illuminated mind. Non-Christians, their mind is dark. Christians, their mind is illumined to the truth. What are those Christian hearts? Look at verse 23. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. That's what's happening on a spiritual level for Christians. We read the Word of God. We study the Word of God. We pray to the Lord. We interact with other Christians. We read Christian books that help us understand the Scripture, help us understand how to love one another, how to grow together with one another, how to serve one another. Why? Because we want to serve, yes, but also because we want our minds transformed. We want Romans 12 too. We want to have our minds transformed by the Word of God, right? Non-Christians, their minds are darkened. I've had conversations with my kids, and they've asked very, very good questions, especially after maybe uh, some time with a teacher, or they've interacted with somebody in the world, some obvious non-Christians, and they'll come back to me and say, but Dad, why do they think that way? Why do they conclude such a thing? It's wrong. It's terrible. It's ugly. It's hideous. It's sin. Why, Dad? Why? Here's the answer, right from the Word of God. The futility of their minds, and they have darkened understanding. And notice what he says in the middle part of verse 18. 
alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. You say, aha, there it is. There it is. They're just ignorant of the truth. They don't know the truth. Uh, they 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 don't have a they don't have a rational understanding of the truth and if they did uh, they'd come around uh, they'd respond no no that word ignorance there it's a culpable ignorance it, it means they have a, a a lack of a proper perception of the truth and it goes right back to Romans chapter 1 in Romans 1 I didn't go on to say it But here's what Paul says. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. They they worship the creation rather than the creator. Why? Because their minds are darkened, because their their thinking is futile, and because of culpable ignorance, they are alienated from God. What do I mean by culpable ignorance? It's not just that they don't have an awareness of these things, it's that they don't care about these spiritual realities. There's a culpable ignorance. They have an intentional suppression of the truth. And that's precisely what Paul says in Romans 1. Everybody knows there's a God. Everybody knows that he exists. I mean, they may not know a lot about him, but they know based on the invisible attributes of his creative power, uh, it is an overwhelming evidence that God exists. And you say, yes, but doesn't the Bible say the fool in his heart says there is no God? Yes, precisely because they are fools, they say there is no God. And what's happening there is not that they don't know that there's a God who exists. It's that they intend intentionally suppress the truth that God exists. It's as though truth is a box and they're standing on the lid of the box. They're trying to stamp down so the truth doesn't pop out. They have a culpable ignorance. They have to acknowledge God. They don't want to. They want to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And they have a refusal, Paul says in Romans 1, to be grateful or to be thankful to the very creator of their lives, their souls. So they're futile in their minds, their thinking, they're darkened in their understanding, they're alienated from the life of God, of the very creator of their souls, and they do that because of the ignorance that is in them. And one more, look at the latter part of verse 18, due to the what? Their hardness of heart. Their hardness of heart. Hardness. Stubbornness of heart. This word, by the way, means petrification, petrified. Their hearts are petrified. You find an animal that has been long dead and is in the bowels of the earth, as it were, and you look at such an animal, and what is it? It's a petrified rock. It's it's a stone. And that's the human heart of the non-Christian. That's who he is. That's the way he thinks. He's like a hard-hearted, stony person who simply is so stubborn, he will do his own thing, even in the face of the creator of his life. That's how non-Christians think. Futilely minded, darkened understanding, 
culpable ignorance producing estrangement from the very life of God and a hardened heart like stone. And my friends, if you meet somebody like that in a sustained condition who's in that way in a settled sense of the term, you can be certain they don't know Christ. You can be absolutely certain that they don't know Christ. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. You say, why would Paul go into such detail for and to Christians as he's writing to them about all the things that they were that they aren't now? He is actually trying to get them to remember back to the way they used to live and to see that as so repugnant to their thoughts, to their affections, to their own hearts, that they would never want to go back there. It's almost like somebody, an evangelist, you might say, who says to Mickey Cohen on his, on his deathbed, Mickey, you said once that you were interested in Christ. You said that you wanted to live for Christ. You wanted to be philanthropic. You wanted to do good deeds. You wanted to loan Jim Voss your car. You wanted to be his friend. You wanted to help out other people. Uh, You seemed to want to do good things. And I suppose his reply would be something like this. Yeah, but in doing that, I was told that Jesus had to be Lord of my life. And my answer to that is, nobody's Lord of my life except me. And Paul wants to show these believers that I insist in the Lord that as repugnant as that old life was, that you know very well that you would never even once be tempted to go back there because it's a life you don't want to live. Don't think like non-Christians think. Secondly, secondly, don't do what non-Christians do. Don't do what non-Christians do. Look at verse 19. It's not just the thinking of non-Christians and what they surmise. It's also what they do. Verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up. Notice that from Romans 1, given themselves up, given themselves over. They have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I mean, Paul's not done yet. He wants to remind these Gentile believers, and they were believers, and they did change from that old life by the power of the Spirit of God. But he wants to to pound into them the reality that your thinking has got to change so that you are being renewed every day of your life, and your actions, your behavior must change as well. Non-Christians, they're so dead to the sensitivity of their sin that Paul says they're callous. And that's exactly the idea of the term. You ever had a callous on the bottom of your foot? I have terrible feet. I have terrible feet. I inherited my feet from my dear mother, who also had terrible feet and who struggled with her feet, including bad, ugly bunions for years and years. I don't want to get too graphic, but I followed in the same plane. And I'm so sorry that a few of my kids have them as well. And they finally became so painful, I had them removed. 
and part of the pain was in the very ball of the underside of my foot because of the mangled toes that I was given. I regularly, especially when I was athletic in the early days, got calluses all the time. And on those calluses, I could literally take pins and press against that callus and not feel a thing. Not a thing. That's exactly what Paul says here. That's the very word. Literally, it meant skin that had become so callous and hard that they no longer feel the pain. They had no feeling. And spiritually, the non-Christian is morally apathetic. He's hard to it. He's ceased to feel the pain of sin and as a result is dead to the feeling of remorse and sorrow. In other words, there's no repentance, no brokenness in their actions. And that's exactly the way that story ended with Mickey Cohen. He did not understand repentance. A turning from your sin. And he had given himself up to certain sins. And I don't know exactly what all of those were in his life, but here's what Paul says is the general nature of what non-Christians do. Notice what he says here. Sensuality. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Aselgeia. Licentiousness. No boundaries with the freedom to indulge the flesh however you please. That's what it means. That's what that word means. Unrestrained sensual appetites. Somebody who's engrossed, engaged in perversion without any shame or embarrassment. And particularly, I think here in the context, this has to do probably predominantly with sexual lust. Maybe also drunkenness. There were met a person who's so drunk they have no idea where they are and what they're doing? book of Proverbs speaks about that. Someone who's, who's utterly devoid of their surroundings, who have uh, no mental stimuli going on because their senses have been incredibly dulled and they're involved in all kinds of sensuality, Paul says. That's, that's what the non-Christian does. You say, now wait a minute, I know that there are some non-Christians that I've met who don't involve themselves in sensuality like Paul is talking about here. Well, he's not saying that every single person is involved in these direct sins. He's just given general categories of what generally non-Christians are up to. And he says, secondly, in addition to sensuality, he says greedy. Do you see that word there? Greedy sometimes translated as covetousness. It's also mentioned, by the way, in chapter 5, verse 3. Covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. What, what were they greedy for? Probably some kind of idolatrous pleasure-seeking. Maybe again, probably so, in the sexual arena. They're idolatrous. In fact, this word covetousness means, literally, it's the combination of two Greek words, pleon and echo, and it literally means, I have or I want more. That's what it means. I'm totally unsatisfied. I'm, I'm greedy for more. I want more. And I've met some of these people. I've even met some of these people who were involved in ministry. 
I have two people in my mind right now, both of them who graduated from reputable seminaries and who went on, quote unquote, in ministry, and both of them were found out to be inveterate liars and who were involved in major sexual sin of this nature, sensuality and greedy, saying, I want more. And both of them were found out. One of them I was involved with very, very particularly, even getting on a plane when I was asked by the senior pastor to come and help him as he dealt with this associate. And it was a hideous mess. Had a wife, had several children, divorced now, She's married someone else. The kids are getting older. Who knows what relationship they have with both mom and dad. And this particular man, of course, no longer in ministry. Still, I presume, probably involved in all kinds of sexual sin and is completely bottomed out in every single way. It's sad. And when I study the Word of God like this and see these particular words and study them as to their meaning. And I, and I see in my mind's eye the idea of sensuality, this unrestrained engrossing of oneself in sexual sin and lust and greedy to have more. I think of these particular people and it grieves me because what grieves me more than anything else is this thought. I presume they're not Christians at all. This is how non-Christians act. Not just the way they think, but their actions as well. And Paul even gives a, a third word here. They are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So in the space of just one verse, he says sensuality, greedy, and the practice of every kind of impurity. Impurity is riotous and excessive living. Unrestrained, unrestrained sexual indulgence. And, and notice, it's something that is practiced. See that word practice there? That actually is a word that comes from the concept that it is a business. It, it's like a profession. It's like these are professional sinners in the sexual arena. Uh, they're all about the business of sexual sin, of sensuality, of greediness. I want more. Every kind of impurity. That's their profession. That's their practice. That's what they do. And of course, you might be saying to me, Lance, get on with it. This is hideous. This is terrible. I didn't come here to be discouraged. I came here to be encouraged. Where, where's the good news? Oh, what's the good part about this? That's point number three. That's point number three. Do what you have heard and been taught in Jesus. <laughs> Do what you have heard and been taught in Jesus. Look at verse 20. Notice the strong co uh, contrast. But, but, it's a very strong contrast. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Now you know why Paul has been saying what he's been saying. I don't want you to go there. I don't want you to go back to that. I don't want you to be characterized that way. I don't want you to be involved in that former manner of life. And I'm going to show you how hideous it is, how dark it is, how futile it is. 
I'm going to show you what sensuality is, what greediness is, what impurity is, and I want to make it so repugnant to you that you will say to yourself, like I am saying to you here, but that's not the way you learn Christ. That's not what you are like now. You were changed. You learned Christ. And by the way, I love that phrase. It wasn't you learned about Christ. It wasn't that you learned some doctrine related to Christ. What he says is you learned Christ. Remember Paul said in Philippians 3, I want to know him, the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know the power of his resurrection. In other words, I want to know Christ. I don't just want to know about Christ. I just don't want to have a knowledge of Christ, which is important and it is crucial, but I want to ascend even in the knowledge basis of learning Christ. I want to learn him, the person of Christ. I want to know him. I want to be personally intimate with him. I want to be related to him in the most knowledgeable way so that I can have intimacy with the person of Christ. You say, well, how can that be when he's not here? And I've had even Christian people, even well-meaning Christian people say, but I've never touched him. I've never been able to embrace him. I've never been able to see him. And I remind them of Peter's words, how blessed you are, even though you've never seen him, you what? You believe in him. You've never seen him. How blessed you are. The apostles did see him, but that's not the greater blessing. The greater blessing is that even though you've never seen him, yet you believe in him, you see him through the eye of faith. And Paul and Peter says that is joy inexpressible and full of glory. You see Christ when you learn Christ, when you know him, when you love him, when you serve him when you defend him. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. This is what Paul's driving to. Here's what he told the Colossians. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How, Paul? Verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You were taught Christ, learned Christ, love Christ. And you say, well, wait a minute, but doesn't it say here in verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him? Assuming? Well, that's not the assumption like we might say, well, I, I hope that you know Christ. Uh, uh, I wish that you were to know Christ so much that you weren't doing the things that you were doing in your past life. No, no, it's a first class condition in the Greek text. And it means this, assuming, and I assume that it is, and I believe that it is, and I know that it is because I've heard these reports about you and how your lives have changed radically and how you are wearing the new clothes of the new man and you've thrown off those old clothes. I know that about you and you can only be that way. You can only change in that way when the Holy Spirit is working vigorously in your life to show you that change and he is changing you and you are availing yourself of his word and you are learning to grow and you do have compassion for others and you are serving them and you are loving the body and this has been the characteristic nature of your life and because that's the case 
If then, yes, it's the protesis and the apotesis. If then, and the if is, I believe you learned Christ. I believe you were taught in Christ. I believe you learned him. I believe you were taught in him. And as a result of that assumption, which is safe and sound, then you don't do those things anymore. You can't because you were taught. Because you heard. You heard the gospel. And when you heard that gospel, it was sweet to your ears. And when you heard that gospel, you believed in that gospel and you were changed by that gospel. And as you were changed, you were continually being changed. And as you were continually being changed, you had new desires, new hopes, new joys. The old life was gone. Oh, not every single part of it, that former manner of your life, and we're going to learn that next week. Oh, yes, you will still battle with some things. You still have sin in your life. Now, when you were brought to new faith in Christ, you weren't perfectly new, but you are created in newness of life, and you're learning how to be progressively renewed in the image of God. And because that's true, you have put off that old man. That status is gone. And even when you battle sin, you know that when you have victory, you're praising God because he is the one who gives you the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you are able to do it. I mean, before, you, you had no way to fight sin. Oh, you might have done some kind of moral reformation. Uh, you might have made yourself a New Year's resolution. And how quickly did that flame out? No, this is you as a Christian, like those in Ephesus and you today, for whom Paul says, that's not the way you learned Christ. And I believe about you that you've heard from him, you are in him, and you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. I love that. Or just as the truth is in Jesus, or in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. What kind of truth? Well, he's the very embodiment of truth. John fourteen six. I am the way and the truth and the life. You love him because he is the truth. The truth is in Jesus. Jesus, that's the truth. And that truth gives you eternal life. And you know that. Oh, I wish I would have had an opportunity to talk with Mickey Cohen. Now, I don't know that I would have been any more successful than someone like Billy Graham. I don't know that I would have been able to show him what you've been shown tonight. But I know this. I probably would have taken him to Ephesians chapter 4 and said, Mickey, if you're laying claim to Christ, if, if you say you know him, if you say you want to follow him, if you want to receive Christ as Savior and Lord like the evangelist told you, then don't do what non-Christians do. And don't think like non-Christians think. And by all means, do what Christians do. And what do they do? They have heard and they were taught in him the very truth that is in Jesus. And they take off the old garments of unrighteousness through the power of the Spirit and they put on new clothes. In fact, 
even if you were to try to put on those old clothes, they don't fit anymore. They don't fit. You're a different shape now. You have a different life. The old life is gone. Behold, the new life has come. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are so encouraged. Oh, yes, it's true that there's a lot of sin that we've talked about tonight. Cataloged, as Paul does. But thank God he catalogs it by describing what we were, not what we are. Father, we need to hear messages like this. We need to see from what we have been delivered. Yes, we were dead in trespasses and sins, and yes, we were following the course of this world, and yes, we did follow the prince of the power of the air. Yes, we were those who were children of wrath. We were deserving of the judgment of God. Yes, we were guilty of thinking the way non-Christians think and doing what non-Christians do. But now, with a strong contrast, we've been created anew. And we've got new clothes on. You've picked us up from our sinful estate. And you have brushed us off and you have washed our bodies clean through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And through his atoning sacrifice, you have put new clothes, the very robes of righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. We're new. We're new in him. Not because of anything we have done in righteousness, but according to your mercy, by the washing of regeneration and by renewing of the Holy Spirit. And because we've got new clothes on, those old clothes, they don't fit anymore. Those garments need to be thrown away. And whenever I'm tempted to go back and to try to fit into that old pair of slacks, that old jacket, might I be reminded that they don't fit anymore and that the sin that I thought was so pleasurable is not pleasurable at all. The things that I was engrossed in are indeed gross. I'm a new man. And we're the new man. A community in Christ. And I pray that if there's anyone here who's never had the life-transforming newness of Jesus Christ come into their life, that they would indeed confess and turn, repent. Not like Mickey Cohen. Not when he came close, it seemed. And maybe the motives were all wrong. Maybe he wanted to do it to be one of those movie star moguls, a Christian gangster with a reputation. 
but he didn't want to repent. And because he wasn't repentant, he had no place in the kingdom of God. Lord, let that not be the condition with any of us. If there's someone here tonight who doesn't have a new heart, I pray, Heavenly Father, that they would receive one, even tonight. Take out that heart of stone and put in its place a heart of flesh, a palpable, shapeable, pliable heart, one that visibly beats to a, a new master. Father, thank You. And may we not be a Mickey Cohen, but may we be a Jim Voss, turning from sin, making restitution for sin, like Zacchaeus, showing the world that the change has been wrought from God Himself and that I don't have to live that way anymore, and that I'll make it right with those I've defrauded. Oh, Father, thank You for giving us an opportunity to listen and to learn on this very night, to, to hear and to listen and be taught that Jesus is the truth. We have heard Him and we were taught in Him because the truth is in Jesus. Thank You, Jesus. Thank You for creating new life in us, the undeserving. And we ask that You would continue to change us into the men and, men and women You want us to be, into the very image of Your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.